Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. Hey, comrades, it's fantastic that everybody is here uh, for this leadership meeting. And it's part of this Canadian perspectives discussion. I went back and looked at our document and the discussion that we had uh, not quite a year ago for the 2021 Canadian Perspectives. And Trotsky explained that Marxism is the victory of foresight over astonishment. And if you read that document, you will find it held up incredibly well, incredibly well explaining the processes that have been occurring over the last 12 months. And, and that gives Marxism its power, where all other tendencies in the labor movement, amongst the liberals, the conservatives are flopping around, they don't know what's going on, whereas Marxism gives us that compass, that understanding of the line of development. And, and, and two of the clearest processes that are detailed in the Canadian Perspectives document for 2021. I recommend everybody go back, reread it, it's a fantastic document. Uh, you will see the two, two of the major processes that we outlined was inflation and the role of the far right. We developed those two things, we explained what was going on. Now, in terms of inflation, at the time, there was no inflation. A year ago, inflation was actually 0% in, in Canada and many other countries. And, and we were saying inflation is coming, inflation is coming, inflation is coming. The, the left, the, the view amongst the left is, ah, you don't have to worry about inflation. Uh, you can print money, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, you don't have to worry about inflation. Uh, in fact, there's deflation. And, there, and in the slump, yes, there, there was uh, pressures for deflation. But we explained very clearly that the money printing, the quantitative easing, the bailouts of the corporations, the low interest rates, all this debt would inevitably become inflationary. That in fact, there was deflationary pressures during the slump, but eventually supply and demand would come back into equilibrium and then the reduced value of money would start expressing itself. Uh, Joel and I just did a podcast explaining where inflation comes from, a bit of the sort of Marxist theory of value and money. And uh, whereas the rest of the left were just ignoring this. They're so like, no, nah, you don't have to worry. You don't have to just print money, just print money. Don't worry about the class struggle. Don't worry about seizing the, uh, the wealth from the bourgeois. No, 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 you can, you can just bypass the class struggle and print money with the uh, modern monetary theory, MMT or magic money tree, if uh, same initials. And, and, and even, even to this day, uh, I, I've seen people on the left, on the soft left say, oh, well, of course, well, okay, there's inflation's going up, but do we even have to worry about that? Is that a big deal? And I really wonder what planet these people live on, right? Uh, or is it the planet mummy's basement? Because uh, do they not do groceries? Do they not pay rent? Do they not 
have to fill their tank with gas. Actually, they definitely don't have to do the third one because the idea of driving a car is supposedly illegal or, or, or criminal or whatever. So uh, to many downtown elites, shall we say, um, who don't understand that many of the working class live in suburbs and have no choice but to drive to work. And, re and it really makes a difference whether it costs $50 to fill your tank or 75 or even even $100 to fill your tank now. So yes, yeah, so these petty bourgeois left live, live on another planet, whereas inflation really matters, that the cost of living really, really matters. And, and it's intrinsically connected to all, all of this money printing, low interest rates and, and corporate bailouts. When we explained that for every dollar given to workers in the form of CERB, uh, CRB, $10 was given to corporations in the form of bailouts. And, and, and you're seeing all of these sort of ridiculous scandals of uh, how, how the, the bailouts have been used for corrupt purposes of uh, corporations doing very well, but it's still accepting the government, government money. In fact, recent, you know, uh, looking at uh, the Statistics Canada uh, numbers have showed that in the middle of inflation, corporations have been profiting massively, utterly massively, that over the last five years, the corporate profits average out around $900 billion. And then, and even in 2020, they were over $900 billion. So the, the so-called, you know, the depth of the slump, they still did very well. Their profits did not go down. They stayed stable at, at around $900 billion. But in 2021, with all of this corporate, uh, all of these bailouts, all of this profiteering, all of these government handouts, they corporate profits shot up by 46%, 46%, to almost $1.4 trillion while workers were asked, were laid off or being asked to cut back. The corporations were lining their pockets. Yes, 46% hike in uh, profits. And, and, and you, know, you know where we got those numbers from? I had to personally crunch the numbers. This just shows you the utter crisis of the capitalist media, that the numbers are all there. You just have to, you know, put in the, the search criteria and do a, you know, a little bit of math. All the numbers are there, but nobody in the bourgeois media cares to do this analysis. Because, well, of course, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And why would they? Why would they identify this massive corporate profiteering? Anyway, so in the 2021 perspectives, we explained the uh, inflation, where that comes from. And we also explained polarization and the far right. And, and, and with the convoy, you've very much seen that with the defeat of Trump, you know, some liberals are saying, oh, that's it, you know, Trump's gone, Trumpism's gone. Like, no, the fact is, polarization and the far right are here to say, very sad to say, but that is a very re uh, stark reality that 
we have to address, but not in a pessimistic or alarmist way. We also explained that it's not the rise of the right, it is polarization. It is a polarization to the left and to the right. And in fact, the specific gravity of the two sides is overwhelmingly to the left, overwhelmingly to the left, that uh, there was that uh, poll we saw, you know, do you uh, support capitalism uh, or do you support moving beyond capitalism? 35% said, yes, we should move beyond capitalism. 25 said no. So the preponderance of public opinion is actually to the left, but the leaders of the far right are far more organized and far more courageous than the leaders of the left. And, and, we, and we detailed that uh, in very specific detail. And we said the main danger of the far right is not in necessarily terrorizing the working class, but it is terrorizing the labor bureaucracy into uniting with the liberals and the status quo which leaves the far right as the only anti-establishment alternative. And, and we've seen that in play out in explicit detail. I'll go, go on to that in deep, more detail later. But th this just shows us that Marxism really does explain the line of March rather than all of these reformist or liberal ideas that just flip flop from one panic to the next, trying to uphold the system. But the reality is the system cannot stand. The system is in abject crisis, that there is no economic way out. And actually, since the crisis of 2008, 2009, globally capitalism is in has been in a prolonged organic crisis, a period where the booms are very weak and speculative and now inflationary and, and the, the slumps are intense. So that doesn't mean there won't be booms. There was even in periods of decline, yes, there will be booms. That tells us that capitalism is still alive. It is, we haven't yet put it to bed that capitalism always moves in booms and slumps, but you get different periods of development. You get periods of upswing, like the 50s and 60s, but you get periods of organic crisis and downturn, which is what we are in right now. That the, the depth of the, uh, the COVID-triggered recession has been turned around, Okay, so now there is modest growth, but it's anemic growth and it's inflationary growth. And it is growth that is not benefiting the mass of the working class by any means. It is, it is a growth that is leading to increased profiteering, increased inequality, increased crisis. And so the, the capitalists have no way out. They don't know which way to turn. They, they turn to you know, deficit financing, bailouts, money printing. And, and what this has resulted in is 
massive increase in debt. Like jet debt to GDP in Canada in 2020 was 117% of GDP, which is higher actually than Greece in 2009, right? So that shows, expresses the crisis that, and the more they delay, the more they continue deficit financing, bailouts, uh, anything like that, that jet to GDP is just gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And at the same time, yes, with all the repercussions of all that money printing is inflation. So we're facing a situation of there's no good options. The capitalists have no good options to get away, get out of the crisis. You either burn by inflation or you freeze by austerity. If they want to try and reduce government expenditure to get the debt to GDP under control, well, they're putting through austerity and that itself will cut economic uh, a development. You know, if, if they raise interest rates to deal with inflation, well, that cuts growth. That cuts growth and it increases expenditure, right? So, yeah, they're stuck in these um, contradictions and we have no idea how they're going to get out of it. They have no idea how they're going to get out of it, right? There is no final crisis of capitalism. Let's not be uh, catastrophists that eventually capitalism can find a, a way out, a way to rebalance itself. How did it rebalance itself after the crisis of the 1930s? Well, they went to world war and they killed 50 million people. That's how they rebalanced themselves. And, and that isn't an option because of nuclear war. So we, we have no idea, they have no idea. Uh, it cannot be theoretically ruled out that uh, at a certain point, they will come to some kind of equilibrium. But before that happens, there will be many, many opportunities for the working class to take power. And we're only at the beginning of the process. We're only at the beginning of a revolutionary epoch. And the youth in Canada and globally had seen nothing but crisis. This idea of the reformism from the 50s and 60s, it, it's, you know, it's a, not even another generation, it's a generation and a generation and a generation ago. So revolutionary conclusions are developing in the working class and especially in the youth. But yes, the, to show how they are stuck. So yes, you've got the high debt, debt, 117% of GDP. The way to get, the way to solve that on a capitalist basis is cut. But if they cut, that gives, that has two problems. On the one side, it exacerbates the class struggle. These regimes are not popular. And so it exacerbates the class struggle and, and leads to the fall of governments. But it also cuts the economy. Strangely enough, when people, when public sector workers and other workers lose their jobs and working class people lose the services that they rely upon, then they don't want to spend money. It's a bizarre thing. 
you know, you, uh, I, I think you've, uh, I, I saw this uh, little cartoon once of a bunch of corporation, corporate executives on a boat and uh, a single poor worker pulling the oars. And then the, all the ex executives are saying, well, we kept cutting and I don't understand why we're not going faster. Right? That's the, uh, the logic of cuts, right? Okay, maybe they can uh, uh, lower the debt and deficit, but actually that didn't happen in Greece. When they instituted austerity in Greece, they actually made the debt to GDP worse because what ended up happening was that it cut economic growth more than the cut in government expenditure. So you have that problem of the potential of austerity and cuts not being a solution. But then the other problem is inflation. There's the real specter of stagflation. Stagnation combined with inflation. And how do you deal with inflation? Traditionally, interest rate hikes. Again, we explain this in Joel and my podcast. Interest rate hikes. What do, does interest rate hikes mean? Well, it makes it more expensive to borrow money. Right to get uh, so again that cuts economic growth. They recently in, the Bank of Canada re increased interest rates from a quarter of one percent to half of one percent, which is you know very minor. But already there's there's wobblings in terms of economic growth. There's uh, you know, a few years ago before COVID we talked about a bond rate inversion as being a signal of a coming slump. Well, there's about to, there's, there's on the, about to be another bond rate inversion. I'm not gonna explain the process. I, I did that back in 2019, but there are, are actually uh, symptoms of a, a new slump coming quite potentially on the basis you've got inflation and then trying to increase interest rates, it could create a new slump. But, uh, but it also has another big problem you increase interest rates, the government increases interest rates to manage inflation. It makes the debt servicing of the 117% of GDP debt load, it makes the cost of you know, paying the minimum on your credit card bill, it makes that go up and up and up, right? Because money has been very cheap, interest rates have been very low, so they could rack up debt and it didn't cost that much. But then if the interest rates go up, then suddenly debt servicing becomes the largest government department and people can't pay their mortgages, right? And, and we've, we've talked about the housing crisis before. So yes, you'll end up with higher debt servicing. So they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't, they, they're damned whatever happens. That is the, the condition of capitalism. That is the, the economic base that we're lying upon, that uh, the system has no way out. They, they don't know. They don't know. We don't know either. But it is, and we don't know exactly what uh, line they're going to take. Are they going to let inflation run riot? And uh, and, and not worry about austerity and debt, or are they going to go to austerity? Uh, they go to austerity and, uh, and unleash a wave 
of defensive class struggle? Hard to know, hard to know. Uh, we can follow that. That's their choice. That's their subjective decision, but all the decisions they make are bad decisions. All right, so last time we discussed Canadian perspectives was back in November. A very good discussion there. And we, and this is, and in, in November, we just come off uh, strike Tolba in the United States. So there was a, there were a wave of strikes and union organizing in the United States, uh, coming from you know, traditionally the, the organizational base of American labor was very low. Traditionally in the post-war period, especially Canadian labor movement, better organized, more successful than the American labor movement. So, uh, and, and, you know, as it says in the Bible, the first will be last and the last will be first. So from that very low basis, you, you've got this sort of wave of strikes and the beginning of a radicalization in American labor. Uh, and, and polls showing that the overwhelming majority of young people would love to be in a trade union. So a real shift in consciousness. And, and, and we talked about inflation in Canada, the same inflation as the United States, so five, six, seven percent, and how eventually this will also lead to strikes in Canada, right? That inflation uh, always leads to strikes eventually eventually but there is a danger there is a real danger of comrades interpreting this in a mechanical fashion right so the 1970s period of inflation period of strike waves internationally right and and inflation is kicking in in canada have we seen the strike wave yet well the answer to that is no the answer to that is no. And that's why it's really important to not take perspectives in a mechanical sense. It is not, we don't have a crystal ball. This is not sort of a promissory note that you can give to history and demand automatic satisfaction, right? Our job is to explain the general processes, but uh, Marxists are, Marxist theory and Marxist method is fantastic at explaining the general processes, but very often we, it's been difficult to explain, to, to precisely predict the exact timelines, right? We don't have that degree of knowledge and you cannot have that degree of knowledge to say, bam, it's gonna happen right, right now. Sometimes it happens uh, a bit quicker than we expected. Other times it happens uh, a lot slower than we hoped for, right? That uh, Marx and Engels actually were uh, uh, you know, classically optimistic about the worker struggle, but some, often ahead of their time, often ahead of their time. And, and, and you have to have that revolutionary optimism. You have to have that revolutionary optimism in order to, to do the task that we do. Um, but I think some people might have taken the discussion we had in November and thought that, oh, straight waves coming tomorrow. And while inflation will cause strikes, absolutely, because workers are not just gonna sit getting 5% poorer every single year, 5%, then 10%, then 15%, then 20%, 20% 
this stuff adds up, that doesn't mean it automatically leads to strikes because there's an important other element of the equation and that is the labor bureaucracy. That is the labor bureaucracy, this crust that has developed on the top of the workers' organizations that are doing absolutely everything in their power to stop the workers from fighting and struggling, right? And we've seen this uh, only in the last uh, a few months, repeatedly, workers taking 80, 90, 100% strike votes. And, and what happens? The, the union bureaucracy signs a 1% agreement the, a few hours before the strike deadline. 1%. That's a 4% wage cut. Or sometimes they get 1.5%. Right? So, and so it's mass with inflation, these are massive wage cuts. And the, the leadership of the working class saying, you are weak, you are poor, you know, you're, 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 you're powerless, you can't do anything. And, and, it, and you've got this you know, political corruption has now been shown to be literal corruption. I don't know if comrades have been following the, the drama in uniform with uh, Jerry Diaz having envelopes with you know, $50,000 in there and passing cash back and forth. Apparently, uh, Diaz also has a condo in downtown Toronto, like a $1.2 million condo and no record of any mortgage. Like what workers representative can pay $1.2 million in cash? Right? It's a different universe. It is a totally different universe that this corrupt bureaucracy lives in, right? Very care, I'm choosing my language very carefully because uh, the danger is when, when you're talking about union politics, you have to be, make sure that you only express your criticism in the concrete. But in the concrete, we can now say this is a corrupt union bureaucracy moving tens of thousands of dollars and, uh, and, and bottles of, of aftershave apparently too were, were on offer. Um, and they're all weasels and backstabbers. Apparently the guy that stabbed Diaz uh, in the back was offered this uh, to share the bribe, and, but he was stabbed in the back by a promise of being the next Unifor president. Um, you know, what workers' democracy has got to do with this, I don't know. Maybe, maybe workers may have a little bit of say democratically on who should be their president, no? No, no, this is just back, backdoor deals. And, uh, and then to sort of like appease him, he got a backhander, but it wasn't enough. Actually, you can kind of make sense from that corrupt perspective. Like, it, like if you could uh, get the presidency and, then, and that's $1.2 million for condos in downtown Toronto versus 25,000, ah, 25,000 is nothing. You know, that, that's, that's just a nice holiday. You know, you're, you're fripped through that pretty quickly. 
So that's the nature of the union bureaucracy. And so that's why uh, while inflation is a general pressure from the working class bottom up for strikes and mobilization, this bureaucratic crust can be, is, is very difficult for the workers to overcome, right? No bureaucracy is stronger than the forces of history, but that is a medium and long-term perspective. In the short term, yes, the bureaucrats can disorganize very well. And, and then they put forward a terrible deal and the workers approve it by 60%. What does that tell you? It tells you the workers opposed it. It tells you the workers are willing to fight, but it's one thing to say that their uh, workers want to fight with good leadership. It's another thing for the workers to say, we still want to fight despite how terrible our leadership actually is and how much our leadership is telling us we're going to lose, right? So that can be a barrier for a period. It could, it, and, and, and we have no crystal ball. We don't know exactly how long that period could last. It, it, could, it could be six months, it could be 12 months, it could be two years, it could be three years. But eventually the force of the working class will win out. But this bureaucracy needs to be overcome either through the pressure from the workers from below or the election of leaders so kicking out of old bankrupt leaders and the election of new leaders that are more reflective of the will, uh, the will of the mass. Uh, it's, a, a, it's a process of successive approximations. So we don't know exactly how and exactly when and exactly who, but the pressure leads you there eventually. But it does, does mean that uh, us as... Uh, revolutionaries, many of us as young revolutionaries who expect and want uh, the revolution to happen today. I remember being, you know, in my teens and early 20s and expecting, yes, the revolution's going to come. It's like, well, we also need a little bit of patience that sometimes it, does, it doesn't necessarily come on the timeline that we hope, but we have to understand this is a process. And because of the terrible, terrible leadership of the workers' organizations, right now in Canada, the momentum is all with the right. The political momentum is all with the right. Actually, go back, uh, COVID, right? You had spontaneous walkouts by workers. You had workers saying that, you know, they're not going back into those unsafe workplaces. In the States, you, you had uh, sort of quite decisive struggles. Chicago teachers went on wildcat walkout against unsafe COVID practices, successfully got important concessions. And what happened in Canada? Well, you had the workers wanting to fight and, and then the labor leadership sheepdogging the workers back to work doing everything possible to stop the independent organizing of workers. Quite scandalous, quite scandalous. And then, and then this eventually, this vacuum of working class leadership uh, leads to sort of people coming, that seeing the ridiculousness. 
you know, you, actually, you've got the working class leadership basically being the second fiddle of uh, liberal and conservative governments. They basically, you know, and and, and uh, the CAC in Quebec. So you, you've got all of the unions, all of the left parties, Quebec Solidaire, NDP, basically backing up the uh, policies of the right-wing governments. And, and, then, and then the COVID regulations make no sense. They make no sense to people. That why is it that anything that is related to personal freedoms is not allowed, but everything that is related to corporate profiteering is allowed. Makes no sense, makes no sense. And, and the answer to that is, you know, what the union should have come out for is workers' control of health and safety and, and double danger pay for, for essential workers and everybody else, full pay where they either work from home or if they're not essential, retrain them, be contract tracers, genuinely address the pandemic. <clears throat> but uh, union leadership totally paralyzed and passive, uh, didn't want to, you know, uh, did nothing to achieve even the paid sick days, despite massive, overwhelming uh, symptoms, um, uh, uh, desire for that amongst the working class. And then, and then you get this convoy. You get uh, this truckers convoy. Of course, we understand it wasn't truckers. Uh, the, the, uh, the closest it was being to being truckers was truck corporation owners. And it was financed by billionaires and uh, right-wing interests, not just in Canada, but especially in the United States. Something like over half of their funding came from the United States. But, but you shouldn't ignore the fact that this was a mass movement and this did connect with a certain layer of population in Canada. It filled a vacuum. It filled a vacuum of people saying, we are sick of the lies and the manipulation from governments and, and, and we're not gonna take it anymore. Uh, but of course, this is then dragged down a far right uh, perspective and a far, yeah. Actually, I think just in the last week, there's a, a, a fantastic movement of uh, a dump truck drivers in Ontario who have faced uh, pay freezes for decades and are asking for a 40% increase in their pay, right? And uh, I can bet you that the truckers movement will have absolutely nothing to do with this genuinely working class dump truck movement, workers movement, because they're, they're nothing to do with workers. But they are audacious. They were audacious. They and and they cre they created a mass movement. The audacity of the right wing leaders. If only we had you know ten percent of that audacity on the left, with you know far higher proportion of the population supporting socialist politics and left wing politics and and uh, and demands that would benefit the working class, you could see a huge movement 
But sadly, we've got an absolute crisis of leadership that le and in that vacuum steps the far right, steps the right populists. You saw Bernier and the PPP, PPC uh, go up in the polls. And now Polyev looks like he's going to win the conservative leadership. That uh, I think the PPC may have gone down a little bit because there's not really much difference between Polyev and Bernier. They're both right populists. So you might as well do it in the traditional capitalist party rather than uh, the, uh, the new one. So, and, that, and that's a interesting development of how uh, the establishment bourgeois, Bay Street, the more liberal bourgeois, if you like, are beginning to lose control <clears throat> of the, uh, the Conservative Party to the, the rabid uh, reactionaries, but same as the American bourgeois lost control of the Republicans under Trump, and to a certain extent, the British bourgeois under uh, Boris Johnson, that they don't have full control of their political representatives. Now, we shouldn't overplay that. It's, they're still capitalist parties and stuff. But it, it, but it just shows that the, the establishment bourgeois, the, the, the finance capital, is not un, does not fully control the situation and is sometimes under the control of its radical fringe, which it can lean on in some situations, but it's also afraid of because they do have the danger of creating a huge backlash. Right. So you see, so the momentum is with the right due to the lack of working class leadership. And now we've got uh, the war in Ukraine. And, and this, again, exacerbates this uh, momentum for the right, that it creates this uh, sort of feeling of national unity. And every, every left, almost every left tendency is capitulated. The NDP is capitulated. The left reformists have capitulated. The, the only people who have not capitulated are the Marxists, explaining that this is an imperialist war on both sides, that the enemy is at home, that NATO played a disgusting role in provoking this conflict, that NATO is an imperialist outfit responsible for the killing of people in Yugoslavia, in Libya, in Afghanistan. Let's not forget the role of US imperialism in Iraq. This is the reality of the Western alliance. It is an imperialist alliance and cannot be supported by the working class. But we are quite lone voices in the wilderness on that. That 90% of the Canadian population, at least at the beginning, are supporting uh, NATO. Actually, even they even abuse the term, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, we want peace. How do you want peace? No fly zone. Yeah, that's peaceful. Nuclear war is very, very peaceful. Right. So, no, they are not a pe peace movement. And uh, but the, the, 
the, the workers' organizations, they've all come out in support. CLC, Unifor, Jerry Diaz, yes, he supports uh, NATO um, for what that's worth. QP, the rest of them have got no, no criticism to be had of NATO. And, and of course, the NDP, incredible confusion, incredible confusion. But it's absolutely vital that we hold a consistent internationalist class anti-imperialist position because people will come to realize. Right? Just imagine what it was like in 1914. In 1914, it was very, very difficult to oppose the war. And that yet the people that did were benefiting in 1917, right? So we could be very proud of ourselves that uh, we have consistently defended a class position. And not just a class position, but an, an anti-pacifist position, right? It's, it's difficult for the, uh, there to be an anti-war movement when, when public opinion is so hostile to that. And, uh, and so it's understandable that many who are first getting involved in the anti-war movement adopt pacifist positions positions that say, you know, we need ceasefire, we need negotiations, and uh, we need disarmament. Whereas, you know, we have to explain that ceasefire and neg negotiations can sound all very reasonable, but what that is doing is recognizing the validity of the competing imperialisms, right? That it is not so, you know, it's a ceasefire on the basis of the power relations between Russian imperialism and NATO imperialism is not a just situation. It does not respect the self-determination of any of the peoples. And remember that Lenin said, a peace without annexations. Uh, ironically, the Communist Party of Canada their position is for sort of negotiations and recognition of everybody's security guarantees. So this is basically the position is peace with annexations. Lenin's position was peace without annexations. We do, and eventually the, the fighting will end. It has, has to end. People cannot fight forever. Although the position of the NATO governments is to keep the fighting going as long as possible to cynically use and abuse the Ukrainian people as a battlefront to kill as many Ukrainians as possible to bleed Russia dry. Uh, that is utterly cynical what they're doing to the Ukrainian people, that Ukraine cannot win, but they were making it so that the war never ends and people keep dying. And so they make it so that Russia cannot win either. The cynical abuse, and yes, they just want to drain their strategic uh, enemy, Russia, like they drained the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. So cynical manipulation, we have to point that out, point out that that does not benefit the people of Ukraine, what a little bit, they're just playing games. But get, getting back to pacifism, that we have to explain that, look, there is no just peace between imperialism and war is the continuation of politics by other means. And so peace is also the continuation of war by other means. If you have an unjust peace, 
an imperialist peace that is dependent on the balance of forces between the imperialist powers, you are merely creating the conditions for future war. That, that's, that's the logic. And we want to end all wars. And war is inherent in imperialism and imperialism is inherent in capitalism. You can get, there is no non-imperialist capitalism. It would always develop towards imperialism. So if you really want to fight war, you must fight imperialism and you must fight capitalism, you must fight for socialist revolution. That's Lenin's position. That's our position and we're proud to support that. And that will benefit the internationalists in the long run when the war fever abates. But in the short term, this creates a well wave of national unity and makes it more difficult for us. Let's not pretend uh, it doesn't. And, and then on top of that, the cherry on top of you've got the convoy, you've got the war, and now just this week, you've got the, the NDP liberal budget deal, no coalition coalition. And this is selling themselves incredibly cheaply. In fact, there's uh, numerous uh, liberal MPs who have related that within the liberal caucus, uh, it was basically explained as, well, we got the NDP to support us for three years and four budgets for what we were going to do anyway. That's how the NDP sold out and removed all of their pressure for a, the only th concrete thing in there is a, a dental plan for young people. But the fact is many of the provinces already have most of that. So the dollar figure of that is going to be very low. And rel especially relative to the hundreds of billions of dollars of corporate bailouts. And, and then it's also going to be very low and very delayed. Okay, pharmacare, two years, three years, yeah. who knows when that comes? Dependent on the, on the election of a liberal government in 2025. So the NDP have, have sold themselves out very cheaply for things the liberals are already going to do. But what comes today? What has no delay? Military expenditure. Military expenditure. In fact, so there's a huge pressure to push up military expenditure to 2% of GDP. And currently it's about 1.4% of GDP, which is too much. Every dollar spent on guns and tanks and planes is a dollar not spent on schools and hospitals and childcare and things that working class people genuinely need. But to push it up to 2% of GDP, that will push it up to $36 billion, which is actually higher than the health transfer to the provinces. More money for guns than money for hospitals and nurses in the pandemic, because the pandemic has not ended, right? That they are cynically just letting the pandemic run wild and saying, oh, it's fine to have hundreds of people die every day. It's fine, doesn't matter. Cost of doing business, they don't matter. And not just people dying every day from COVID due to 
not funding healthcare, not taking it, the pandemic seriously. Now it'd be a massive increase in funding to kill people overseas. That's what military expenditure is for, right? It is to promote Canadian imperialism. And then the NDP is tied to the Liberals like this. Tied to the Liberals like this and not for a short budget deal. You know, this is not a few months to get a, uh, a concession. This is three years for budgets. So the NDP will be seen to be complicit in all of the failures of the Liberals, all of the corruption of the Liberals, whether they like it or not. And they're definitely complicit in the military expenditure. And while all the reforms are vague language, eventually long-term, blah, 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 guns come right now. Guns before butter, guns before better services. And, and people will be sick of this. And, and this is exactly what we explained with the right wing when we explained the, the rise of the populist right, that the, the biggest danger is the, the reformists tying themselves to the liberals. That the way that you can increase support for the right is to have the workers' organizations tie themselves to the establishment. So, which the NDP has now done demonstrably without getting anything significant. You know, it's not universal uh, dental care. It's not universal pharmacare. It's all means tested. It's all very vague and limited. Uh, they've tied themselves to that. It's not going to solve inflation. It's not going to solve the capitalist crisis. So you allow Polyev to get up and blame the crisis and blame inflation and blame all the problems in society on liberal NDP socialism. That's what it'll do. That's what it'll do. And the only anti-establishment force will be the right wing. So uh, that definitely puts the NDP out as an, an avenue for struggle. And so it's important to understand that we, we live in a revolutionary epoch. Capitalism is in crisis, but there is no straight line to victory. There's never been a straight line to victory. Even in 1917, you had the July days. In the Spanish Revolution, you had uh, the, the, the two black years, uh, 34 and 35. And uh, while the masses are radicalizing. The masses are opposing capitalism, especially the youth. It needs an expression. It needs an expression for there to be a mass movement. And so the leadership is an extreme crisis and corruption. So there could be a delay. It, it's again, it's hard to predict. There, there is amazing combustible material from the bottom up. Amazing combustible material. We said 35% oppose capitalism. Amazing combustible material. People are willing to fight, but they have to have a battlefield to fight on. And they have to have the officers and the generals that will lead them and not betray them. So we could find ourselves in a period of generalized alienation and radicalization without 
uh, mass expressions of that. We shouldn't be surprised. Again, the nature of perspectives, we also shouldn't be surprised if something blows up that's totally unexpected, right? But pe people tried lots of different avenues, right? They're, they're, they're butting their heads up against the labor bureaucracy in terms of union contracts. They, people tried mass mobilization with Black Lives Matter, right? So there's mass demonstrations, but what's happened, but those demonstrations have uh, uh, diminished. And then what, what has been the result of that? Well, there's no political expression came out of that movement and police budgets are going up and police murders are continuing. So it, it, it didn't succeed, it didn't succeed. And so pe people are thinking so like, what's the way out? What do we do? Uh, they want to fight, but you've got to have a vehicle to fight. So something could blow up, something unexpected could blow up in, in short notice, but equally because of the bankruptcy of the leadership, that there could be a, a period of, you know, one, two, three years of not much mass struggle. And, and you, shouldn't, you definitely should not call this a period of reaction, but it, 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 the momentum is with the right due to the crisis of working class leadership that Trotsky explained in Transitional Programme, that the crisis of humanity can be resolved down to the crisis of working class leadership. If you wanna go back to the 1930s, the Great Depression started in 1929, but the workers' movement didn't really start moving until 1934, 35, right? Because of crisis of leadership. And, it, and in fact, it was revolutionaries who played an instigating role in 1934 in Toledo and Minneapolis and, uh, and on the, uh, the, the west coast of the, uh, the longshoremen. So uh, we, we have to have patience and, and understand that the struggle does not correspond to any sort of timelines that we want. It follows its own tune. But one thing we can say as a revolutionary organization is there are more, at, more, than enough, more than enough people who are looking for a revolutionary organization and are looking for a revolutionary core. And so there will be no shortage of people who want to join Fight Back, La Reposte Socialiste and the International Marxist Tendency. And, and, that, and that is our experience. Dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of people are uh, joining us. And, and you saw it with the fantastic Montreal Winter School with over a thousand people in attendance, incredibly high political level discussions, extreme ex enthusiasm and desire to fight and to understand the crisis, right? Whereas all other tendencies find themselves in confusion and demoralization and capitulation to petty bourgeois reformist politics or sterile ultra leftism. The ideas of the international Marxist tendency of genuine Marxism are marching forward and people are jumping on board. So what this is, is a period of clarification. It is a, a period of clarification that it is sweeping the decks of all of those capitulators 
all of those corrupt bureaucracies. Everybody is showing who's on one side of the barricade and who is on the other side of the barricade. Ukraine is showing that. The liberal NDP deal is showing that. Who is on the side of militarism and imperialism and, uh, and the budget that will enforce that? That is a period of clarification. And inevitably, ine inevitably, the working class will be forced to move because there is no solution. There is no solution to inflation right now. It's the only solution is austerity, which again is no, it's, it's uh, no solution for the workers. It makes things worse for the workers. So the workers are poorer by inflation or poorer by austerity. Pick your poison. Every road leads to class struggle. And this period of clarification will be a selection of those who can keep their heads. And we have kept our heads and kept our organization very well. And we are moving forward. We are more moving forward decisively so that when the inevitable struggles do come, we will be in a position to give a lead, to give the genuine revolutionary ideas, to have earned that respect by holding our heads while we were in an extreme minority. So that when the tide turns and the, uh, the, the movement, the workers lift their head up again and start fighting, then we will be there. And that's why this weekend's discussions, we must make sure that we put in place all of what is needed to develop the revolutionary forces in Canada as part of the revolutionary forces internationally. The epoch is with us, comrades. We are marching forward and we will win. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.